This is Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. This is a book I hope everybody takes a listen to. Eduardo really, he just, he brings you into that world and it tells the story of the last century and it's just in a beautiful, beautiful way through, through flawed people, but loving people and really funny people. You just heard Adriana Trigiani talking about Eduardo Ballerini's narration of her novel, Tony's Wife. Adriana is known for her big-hearted novels that focus on family, craft, and work, often centered on Italian-Americans. And you certainly find all of this in Tony's Wife. Chichi Donatelli and Severio Armandinata are first-generation Italian-American factory workers in the mid-1930s. And even though they live thousands of miles apart, they share a dream of making it with a big band. Severio is a singer, and Chi-Chi is a songwriter-arranger who sings with her two sisters. Severio hits the big time first, leaving the factory and changing his name to Tony Arma. He meets Chi-Chi at the Jersey Shore when his band comes through on a gig. She's still recording songs in her father's garage after a shift at the blouse factory, but she is absolutely determined to have a life in music. I don't think about anything but singing. You should. Because I'm a girl? No, because it's not all there is for anybody. How do you know? Because I'm living it. I want to travel from city to city and sing in a different club every night and meet new audiences. You'd get tired of it. Never. Chi-Chi and Tony's romantic and professional partnership is at the heart of Adriana Trigiani's Tony's Wife. But that's not the only story Adriana is telling in this novel. It's the story of the big band music, which really defines the last century when we look at music as an art form because it came from the working people. It rose out of the coal mines and the steel mills and the factories. And, of course, the ultimate voice of that, of that sound was Frank Sinatra. So I wanted to write a story that set against the landscape of that and I wanted to write about the women that I come from who were born before 1920, and they were working women. They went into factories to work. So I wanted to write against that background also. You really have a very long trajectory with this. What is it? It's 60 years? Oh, yes. It's from 1938 to 2000. Mm-hmm. Adriana, was there something in particular that sparked the idea for this book? I have many, many ideas that I want to develop into stories, and sometimes they will be plays, or sometimes they're just a poem, Joe. They're just, it'll just be a poem, <laughs> but it becomes something. But there are things that happen in the world or in life that trigger the the development or the blossoming of an idea. And with this one, it surely was, for me, a, a few things happened. The death of my mother, that was pretty central. My father's record collection and his collection of books, one being the autobiography of Henry Mancini, which played a big role in it for me. A concert I went to in Carnegie Hall with my uncle and aunts and their friends, totally by accident after I got out of college and was living in a boarding house, I saw Stephen Eadie, Stephen Lawrence and Eadie Gourmet at Carnegie Hall, which was one of the great nights of my life. I wanted to write a working couple that are married and sing together. 
and show that life because a family business is basically a family business no matter what it is music happens to be something we all love we consume it and so i wanted to sort of dive in and get my hands in the dirt with the songwriting which you know i had never done before and chi chi's a songwriter so i had to really i had to write songs and and get in there and tell their story through the songs and then tell the story of a woman through that, you know. My World's Gone Topsy-Turvy. Lyrics by C.C. Donatelli. You can outrun it, deny it, or test it, but you'll never best it. Baby, that's love. You might want it, crave it, even need it, but you'll never beat it. Baby, that's love. Chorus. Even as I sing this song, my world's gone topsy-turvy. As the notes dip and soar, sugar, I think you're nervy. If you love me, you should claim me. Stop pretending and never blame me. Baby, don't you love me? Cupid stuck you and got you good, straight through the clouds from above. As if you could doubt it, and why would you, you big lug? Baby, that's love. Repeat chorus. I wanted to ask you about writing those songs. That seems like a very hard thing to do. Did you have a, a, a tune in mind? Well, I do have tunes in mind because, you know, I'm a dramatist first and foremost. Before I was a novelist, I was trained and I began as a playwright. That's where it all starts for me is the stage. And I see everything visually and then even cinematically as I direct and write movies. And so I see things unfold in a certain way, not as a movie, but as a life. So even when I'm doing a play... I see the layers of the stage, the aesthetics of that. But mostly at the heart of being a dramatist is that the most fundamental aspect of that is the way I relate to the actor. And I revere the actor. The actor is the, he's the instrument in the orchestra. She is the instrument in the orchestra. And so when I went to write these songs, I thought of actors that I have worked with and how they would approach it and perform it and I've had the great privilege of working with some great uh, comic actors. So when Chi-Chi's words came to me, they were songs that would have been written for and in my grandmother's kitchen or my great aunt's kitchens, certainly my mother's kitchen, but they're funny, they're humoresque, a lot of them. There's a song, Gravy, Gravy, Gravy. Well, in a, for, the, for Italian Americans, that can mean your sauce. But it can also mean you made it, because gravy means it's flowing like a river, you know, the dough, the money. And and also wrote a song called uh, Mama's Rolling Pin. And that was, you know, you make dough, I make dough, we make dough with Mama's Rolling Pin. But it was also the billy club that the wife, the fictional wife in the song uses to keep her husband faithful. So, you know, I just used the thing, the implements of the kitchen to start the songwriting, to kick it off. Was it fun writing those songs? It really was. I mean, I had a ball doing it. Yeah, it felt that way. Tony's already a singer with the big band when he meets Chi-Chi. She was so determined and talented and versatile. And she also had her father's support. Chi-Chi, he was always trying to get her music around. And in those days, if you could sing, you could find a little recording studio somewhere. They were everywhere. They were on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. They were in small towns. And Chi-Chi's father, Mariano, turns their garage into a recording studio, which was the thing to do back then. They did it. So as you could tell, Joe, I just tried to really make the story 
organic to this family that this was a family business. It was a family thing. And so I play out the story of their love affair, eventual love affair, and the way that their family survived it for good and ill through the years against this family business. You could not compromise that business because the business maintained the family and sustained the family. And love could come and go sometimes between the man and the woman, but you had to keep that business going. This is the second book of yours, I think, that Eduardo Bellarini narrated. Yeah, I I hope he does every single one going forward, too. I hope as long as I live and write that he does them. He's, He's astonishing to me. He's a... You know, Eduardo is an actor, a beautiful actor, great, great, great gift to books, which is the audiobook. Eduardo just brings it to life, and he has a facility with tone and texture and voices and context, and he's an actor's actor, I would say. He engages you in the story that you care about it from beginning to end. You know, it doesn't feel truncated. It's a smooth ride. Let's hear some of Eduardo Ballerini's smooth ride. This is a conversation that comes early in Tony's wife. It's between Chi-Chi and her father. You're going to make it. I know it. It's a matter of when, right, Dad? You keep your eye on the mountain, and you take the path one step at a time, and soon you'll get to the top. Stay true to your way of looking at things, to your ear. You write a good song, and you can sing as good as any of the girls out there. Believe in yourself. You know what you are. You gotta have faith. What is faith? Eight years with the Silesian nuns and you don't know? I guess I could give you their definition. What's yours? Faith is courage. It's the unspoken pact you have with God and your own soul that will not stop until you are spending the time you've been given doing the thing you were born to do. Where'd you hear that? Made it up. You know, Eduardo was an interesting choice for Tony's wife since it really is Chi-Chi's story. And so to have a male narrator, though, Eduardo, I can't say enough about his performance in this book. I thought it was fabulous. Was that your decision? Yes, I requested him. But I would also say that that Beth Ives is always jumps up and down for Eduardo and so did my editor and publisher and Everyone loves his work. It's never a hard sell with Eduardo, but I have to say what's great about him is and, and about the book is I think it's I think it's about a marriage and I don't think you and I would look at it as women and say it is her story, but when a man reads it, I think they think it's Tony's story. So it just depends on your point of view whose story it actually is. But it's pretty evenly weighted in terms of the way the story's told. And certainly when you get to the you get to to the end, that's a standalone almost. Sort of uh, Tony's last stand, so to speak. That's an opus for an actor there. And the thing about actors working with them is they can do anything. They can cross gender, they can play any age. To an actor it doesn't matter. An actor's just trying to get to the truth. Now, that's when the work begins, but it's, it's really seeking a way to tell the story that the audience is, is open to it and that the audience then can go on their journey. And with the spoken word, it's about painting a landscape. It's about taking all his gifts and 
bringing that reader in to listen, you know, it's the oldest way to tell a story is person to person. It was before there was an implement to write. They had to communicate with sound. And sound is one of the most beautiful of our senses because it comes at us, right, actually in a wave. And it moves through us. It moves through our bodies. And an actor, the instrument is the human body, but it's all the senses. But in an audio book, an actor like Eduardo has to take it as a performance. And he knows, it's almost as if he says to himself, and I, I can't speak for him, but the great audio book readers will tell you this, the actors, is that it's as if someone comes to the theater, can't see, and can only hear. And he has to build a world. And and it conjures such a, a sense of security and safety for the listener. Oh, God, yes. Because for those of us that have been read to, it's really something, Joe. The number one determinant of success in life is did your parents read to you when you were little? It's number one. It implies everything about a home. It implies the, the care given to the written word. It implies time spent in solitude and quiet. It teaches the child solitude, self-soothing with books. It teaches the importance of a narrative over the course of a lifetime that you are building a story. You're building a story every day in the way you live. And it shows a reverence and a respect for the written word. And so to hear the word that the author has written, it's a wonderful spoke in the wheel of the art form of storytelling. Yes, agreed. And beautifully put. I had no idea that being read to was the number one determinant for success. I'm not surprised, but I, I really didn't know that. That's so interesting. Number one, makes you a lifelong learner. And it's so exciting to me. I think you know this, that the, the audiobook is the fastest growing segment in book publishing. And for many reasons, but one of them is, you know, is, is the population ages and their sight suffers, they can listen. And it's that's a great thing. And for children who have any issues reading, the shame really goes when they can follow along and listen. Any classic, any current book that is out, fiction, nonfiction, it, it's really a gift. You have narrated a few of your own books. How was that experience for you? Well, I love doing it. Aaron Blank over at Random House and my friend Amanda DeCerno insisted I go back and do the Big Stone Gap series, and that worked out great. And I did uh, I did half of The Shoemaker's Wife, which was a disaster. Oh. I'm just being honest with you, Joe, because you had the great um, Annabella Shora do the first half, and I did the second half, and readers staged a coup, or listeners did. And so I really, I laid an egg, and I admitted it. And then Orly Cassidy came in, and she batted clean up and did the whole book. So, I mean, I what, what, what I love is how forgiving my readers are. For the two people that liked me reading the second half of The Shoemaker's Wife, thank you. <laughs> so I think it depends. I love doing it. Mae Wethridge directed me doing the Big Stone Gap series, and she was fantastic. I think for me, it takes a strong director to to help me do it, and um, she was sensational. You know, it's a matter of, again, what what's the goal? Can you really bring Ave Maria to life here? And of course, Ashley Judd did it so brilliantly in the film, and 
So when I did it, I did it as I do when I write, because when I write, I read aloud, which is what takes me so long, because I read aloud as I go. Because if I can read it aloud seamlessly, then it's going to be a, a very smooth read for you. And that that also probably adds to the fact that your books just translate so beautifully into audiobooks. Well, thank you. I think that has to do with the dramatizing, because dialogue is is really important and details are important and I really love to write the detail of a place which has to do with the setting in a very theatrical way but it also has to do with with life if you can remember the context of where you were and what you ate and what the scent of the room was and what people were wearing it it makes a difference you hold on to that memory in a way that you don't when you don't have those details it's a different thing don't you agree? I mean, it's just... Yeah, completely. And you did that with the Jersey Shore in Tony's Wife, most particularly. I know the Jersey Shore so well, and I love, love, love the sea. And it was great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. One of the last trips that my grandfather made, and he didn't travel much, my grandfather, even though he was he was an amazing man, mayor of a little town and stuff, but he had had, he had been ill. And my grandmother, you know, she had a sense about how to be a grandmother. They brought us to Atlantic City, and we saw, like, an ice show, and we were on the boardwalk, and we swam in the ocean. And we have pictures of that day. And so when I write the Jersey Shore, I'm writing that day, really. I'm writing that day. It was a perfect day because it belonged to her. She answered to no one. She let that knowledge wrap around her like the warm breeze off the Atlantic. Chi-Chi was off the clock, and the sun was high in the sky and looked like a scoop of lemon ice. The beach at Sea Isle City was packed with Union families during the July 4th holiday week, from the water's edge to the bluffs. This particular slice of the Jersey Shore was punctured with poles anchoring billowing striped umbrellas of orange and white, navy and pink, and red and yellow. Lolling beneath them were as many people as could fit, the remainder of open sand was a patchwork of beach towels and sunbathers. From the pier, the colorful wedge of beach looked a lot like a jelly bean spill. Clearly, all immigrant origin stories are universal, but they're also distinctive at the same time. I'm curious what you think is distinctive about the Italian-American story. Well, first of all, the word immigrant was a word of honor in our home, and it's a word of honor in my home. I feel that the importance of of the role of the immigrant in this country is like it's like the it's the bricks and the wall. It's everything. It's the structure of a democracy. When we talk about Italian Americans, the story is pretty simple. I would say the Italian American experience or the Italian American journey is usually we were very poor and we came here with very high hopes. Many of us came and worked and went home, but the ones that stayed built like an incredibly good life. And all of the things that they're accusing the immigrants of now of being criminals and killers and all, well, that's what they said about the Italian-Americans. But the thing about being an American that's so beautiful, and I think Ronald Reagan said it best, you come here, you put your suitcase down, you're an American. And it's what makes us strong. For all this is, is the diversity. And so when, when I write about it, you know, and I bring in other cultures, of course, and it's, it's important, 
because that's the actual truthful experience of what what happens to us is that we begin to to merge which is beautiful and we should never be afraid of that because the only thing that you can count on is change adriana this i'm sure is well-worn territory for you but can you just tell me a little bit about your upbringing uh italian americans in appalachia that is a bit unusual how did you how did this happen I know. I'm an Appalachian Italian American, but I'm not that rare. I know that sounds crazy, but there are pockets of of very proud coal miners that are from Italy that that settled in West Virginia. I'm from Virginia, the great southwest of Virginia, the, the corner. And how we got there was my dad was in the blouse making business working for his parents. He was 33. And he had seven children under the age of 10 in 1968. And there was a program called the War on Poverty President Johnson had put in place. And they were finding young entrepreneurs in the North to bring them South because they wanted to find businesses that they could bring in to places like Southwest Virginia to supplement the coal business. My dad was sort of a lone wolf there. And he put up a mill, and then he had two or three going, and they were small. And my dad kind of had a commitment to put them in the poorest areas and train the workforces. So I would say that I'm an Appalachian down in my bones, an Appalachian American, an Appalachian Italian American. I know that sounds really good. Yeah, I love my people. Yeah, yeah. How often do you go back to Big Stone Gap? I'm there quite a bit because uh, Nancy Bowmeyer Fisher and I have an in-school writing program called the Origin Project now in our seventh year where we do an in-classroom uh, writing project with uh, students grade 2 through 12. And we started with 40 kids, and we're up to like 1,500 now. Now we're, it's going across the state, and it's year-round. I bring authors in the second semester. First semester, they get a journal, and they're required kind of the Bank Street model to write one article, poem, story, play, whatever they choose about their origins in Appalachia. And then we publish them at the end of the year with the Gupta Foundation. It's really great. Oh, it sounds wonderful. And I think this is a good place to leave it. Adriana, thank you so much. And thank you, Joe, because this is this is a book I hope everybody takes a listen to. Eduardo really he just he brings you into that world and it tells the story of the last century and it's just in a beautiful, beautiful way through through flawed people, but loving people and really funny people. Flawed, funny, loving. The whole the whole thing. It was great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. That was novelist Adriana Trigiani. We were talking about her recent novel, Tony's Wife, which was narrated by Eduardo Ballerini. You can read our review of Tony's Wife and of literally hundreds of other audiobooks at audiophilemagazine.com. Our thanks to Jessica Lockhart, Robin Witten, Emily Connolly, and Jennifer Dow for all of their assistance. The music is William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, Four Way. And I'm your host, Joe Reed. Good listening. <laughs>